Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm here today with Kiran Setia, who is a philosopher at MIT, and he's also somebody who's written books of public interest. He's written a book on the philosophy of the midlife crisis and another book called Life is Hard, which is uh, about how philosophy can help us live better lives. It's uh, basically a work of self-help. And uh, so I'm delighted to be here to talk to him today about um, what philosophy is and uh, how it can be relevant beyond the, ac the academy and, and much more. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So in uh, one of your books, you actually open with a debate between Hillel and Shammai, two Jewish sages, about whether you should teach the Torah on one foot. Um, yes. <laughs> Hillel uh, says that it's, it's a good thing to do and, and Shammai refuses. And you identify with Hillel. So as somebody who has um, started off in kind of institutional um, philosophy, but has more and more um, turned to the public and addressed topics that typically don't get addressed in um, sort of the professional space, um, walk me through um, what it is about the Hillel sentiment, um, the Hillel way of being that sort of appeals to you and, and what have you learned from it? And and who are the shamais? Not not to name names, but like what's give me like strong man or steel man the the sort of the counter argument as well. Okay, I will try. The I do love I Rabbi. I am not Jewish. My wife is Jewish, and most of my experience of an exposure to Judaism is through her. Her I I sometimes describe myself as a as a would be secular Jew. Like if if I was going to be religious. I would be a secular Jew. That that's it. It somehow spoke to me in a way that my previous religious experience didn't. And Rabbi Hillel is part of that. The epigraph to the midlife book is Rabbi Hillel saying, "If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? And if I'm for myself only, what am I? And if not now, when?" Which I think is both timeless advice and timely advice if you're having a midlife crisis. And the the episode with Shammai, for me, it, it's the combination of the fact that. Hillel is not willing to turn away someone who genuinely wants to learn, is willing to say something simple. He basically tells him, um, do not do unto others what you would want, not want them to do unto you. That's the whole Torah. But then he ends by saying, now go study. So now you've committed to this by being invited in. That's not the end of the story. You now are beginning a journey that might become intellectually more challenging than the initial soundbite. And so I do think that both sides of that seem to me really important, that philosophers should be willing to speak incautiously in a way they wouldn't around their professional colleagues to invite people into philosophical reflection, be open to the fact that it can be helpful, not be, as it were, embarrassed to, to make philosophy helpful, but not think of that as the end of the story, to think of this as an invitation to people to keep thinking philosophically for themselves, to go study. And I mean, the uh, the case for the Shammai uh, perspective, I suppose, is that there is a there are risks in doing public philosophy that you will simplify complicated issues. I worry about that less than a second worry, which is that philosophy is very much about thinking for yourself and the complexities of argument. The risk I really worry about in writing philosophy that's aimed to help people live their lives is the risk of seeming to adopt a guru-like position in which I mean to be making philosophical arguments or inviting someone to reflect on a philosophical perspective. And they read it as if it was being offered ex cathedra by some kind of wise person. And I, I feel like the, for me, that's the contradiction of writing philosophical self-help is that I just don't think of myself as having 
that kind of authority. And there's a risk in the genre that you will be read as though you do. Hmm. Do you, do you have any examples or models of people who are able to effectively give self-help, but do it in a way where they um, deflected from this guru status or sort of maintained a kind of Socratic coyness and, um, in fact, embedded that in, in, in the message they were trying to impart? In other words, don't look to me for answers, but kind of look, look to yourself in conversation with others and sort of we're in this together as opposed to like speaking from the mountaintop. That's a good question. Answers are not immediately springing to mind, to be honest. I mean, it, it, you could point to the dialogue tradition in philosophy as a, a, trying to exemplify that, to avoid taking up a fixed position. So even if you can try to speculate about what Plato, Plato's view is in a dialogue, sometimes some dialogues invite that more than others. The form is designed to invite you into a conversation that's unstable. But that's not the only way to do it, but it's one way to do it. And philosophers these days tend not to write in that kind of mode. The mode of philosophical writing is predominantly that of you know, setting out your conclusion very clearly and then assembling a systematic argument for it. And so there is a tension between that and, and I think the open-endedness you might want to invite someone to experience in, in learning philosophy. So I think there's a real challenge in combining those two. And yeah, let me keep thinking if maybe people will come to mind as having having bridged this gap. I mean, I certainly try to do it myself, but I think I I sometimes err on the side of being too determinate in my conclusions because I think it's just it can be confusing as a reader if if someone is just elusive about what they actually stand for. And I think there are different ways to try to push back against that without being too confusing. So in the midlife book, it's slightly tongue-in-cheek, the framing of it as a self-help book, the embrace of the midlife crisis. It's something that people joke about. And that was a way I thought of saying, we're doing philosophy, but don't take me to be some serious guru telling you uh, what to think. Take this with a, read this with a little irony. Uh, and that was a way to, I think, open things up. And in the, the, the new book, I against the advice of some editors, I do spend some time criticizing philosophers. And part of the point of that is because I think they're wrong, and I think they're wrong in important and instructive ways. But part of it is to remind the reader that you can disagree with philosophers, including me. So the, there are techniques I, I think you can use to try to invite the reader not to just agree to what you're saying. But yeah, I'm not, I, I will have to think about self-help philosophical self-help writers who really do this well. Hmm. One of the examples that came to my mind as you were talking, and it's been a while, I'm kind of rusty on this, but in um, in Plato's Phaedrus, there's a moment where um, Socrates and Lysias seem to have a, a, a disagreement with one another over the nature of how to give a proper speech. And <laughs> it seems like Lysias' position is that the speech should be sort of um, I guess I'm going to interpolate it a little bit, but more like your standard self-help book um, with a with a beginning, middle, and end, and that um, Socrates is worried that sort of it will make it too easy for people, um, and so you have to sort of make the the work almost poetic and sort of create all these openings for people to experience something like the dialogical, even though they're reading, which is, I guess, we typically think of reading as like submitting to the text. 
you know, it has authority over you rather than this thing that you can kind of talk back at. Yeah. No, I, I love that example. Actually, I mean, if we're thinking, I was initially thinking of contemporary self-help writers. If we expand things backwards, then I think Montaigne is another figure here who writes in a way that is recognizably useful to people in grappling with their lives, uh, despite the the centuries that divide us from him, but is extremely uh, elusive, unstable, shifting, and essayistic in a sense. So there are, there are models like that. I'm not, it, yeah, what's harder for me to come up with off the top of my head are contemporary writers who write philosophy in that, in more in the style of Montaigne than in the style of of the the sort of uh, rigorous academic uh, proof. Mm-hmm. I'm going in a few directions now because one of the thoughts I had about, I didn't mention my introduction, but you've got a very lovely podcast called Five Questions. And I think it's very special um, to, to have philosophical conversation in oral form. And I know some people have an attitude towards podcasts that it's sort of lesser than the written, um, maybe because of the logocentrism that, you know, Derrida named. But but I actually sometimes find myself in the reverse, and maybe this is a little self-aggrandizing here because we're on a podcast, but like you get more of the liveliness and the surprise um, that connects people to the wonder that initiates philosophy as opposed to um, the goal of a written text being to sort of pr- focus on your conclusions and your arguments and you've already done the work. So by the time you've gotten to the paper, so the paper is in some ways, or the the book is the conclusion. And um, you speak about the importance of having atillic activity as actually constitutive of the good life, sort of non-goal-oriented um, p- parts of life where you can just be. For me, for me personally, the oral form actually is that much more than the written form. And I'm wondering how you relate to that. And if you see podcasting and philosophical conversation whether recorded or not, but especially when it's recorded, as contributing to the genre um, or even returning to the genre of sort of philosophy. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's uh, attempting to be very self-aggrandizing here. Yeah. <laughs> the podcast is the true form of philosophy, finally. I, I, but I, I do love talking to philosophers in that mode. One of the things I love about it is I think the personality comes across in conversation especially when I ask people about their temperament or their fears, but also I do ask them about their philosophical work, but always in the context of their lives. And I I think there are some philosophers whose personality really shows up in their writing. A lot are suppressing it. But when you actually talk philosophy with them, you get a sense of the lived meaning of philosophical ideas for them that I I think you miss that in writing very often. Maybe some people write that way and you could write that way maybe, but it's not the norm. So that's something that I get out of talking to people and I hope it, it, listeners can pick up on. And then I do think you're right that there's a, an atelic aspect to it, This part, which is that I'm not trying to get anything in particular out of those conversations beyond talking to someone interesting in a somewhat structured format until you know we run out of time. And I think it has made me enjoy philosophy in ways that I was missing beforehand, certainly missing during the pandemic. And I, yeah, I think the joy of talking philosophically is often hard to pick up on if you're just reading philosophers, the joy of, of intellectual connection. And 
you know, that part of my midlife crisis back, you know, over the last five, 10 years was to do with feeling out of touch with the joy of philosophy, which had very much become a professional structure of, you know, write a paper, get it published. And that has its own frustrations because the review system is so problematic and so on. But also it, it's just structured as if this is a matter of accumulating professional achievements. And the podcast, even though, you know, you finish a podcast and you you edit it and then you post it or whatever, that's so clearly secondary to the share, the ongoing sharing of the experience. So yeah, I, I, I find something very beautiful about the value of philosophy in those conversations that is not easy to convey any other way. You mentioned the magical number of 40 in your book on midlife and um, sort of different different traditions have this idea that, oh, you know, now now you can begin to live your life sort of now that you've <laughs> put your youth behind you. Like in a way, there's a positive aspect to midlife, which is, you know, maturity. And in the Jewish tradition, Kabbalah um, is something that I guess um, there's folklore around that you can only begin studying this tradition when you turn 40. Um, there are sort of more narrow constructions of that. Um, there, there's, a, I guess, that some some people would go so far as to say you have to be a married 40-year-old man to study it. I, I, for the record, do not subscribe to you have to be married uh, or a man or 40 to study this. But um, I do want to understand where that's coming from. And um, you could give a kind of historical explanation for it, which is well, we saw what was done with this tradition and it sort of took us in kind of extreme directions politically and sociologically. So the people that were prescribing this sort of soft rule were wanting to tamp down on this sort of the dangers of this mystical tradition that it, it, it might lead to the wrong conclusions if people aren't properly grounded or pro properly trained. Um, and so 40 represents, I guess, having some stake that if you, if you were before that, you wouldn't have. So I'd be curious to hear your perspective on um, just as someone who's gone through midlife and has passed the 40-year mark, you know, obviously we don't need to be so ageist as to as to say 40 is exactly uh, 40 revolutions around the the sun. But um, what what do you make of this this idea that sort of mysticism uh, and certain poetic ways of reading the Torah should be reserved for people who have reached a certain life stage? It's really interesting. I'm not sure how I would respond to that. I take it the thought is let, let's generalize this to doing philosophy and and whether there's a kind of whether it's appropriate to think that there's an apprenticeship you have to go through in which you really should hold off on certain kinds of philosophical inquiry or that life experience or, and and certain kinds of situatedness make you better positioned to benefit from that would be the upside argument. Or, or that are necessary to to protect you against um, that would be the downside argument. Wh whatever this this thing is, whether we call it Kabbalah or philosophy, or you know, insert wisdom tradition here. I think the reason I struggle with this question is because it's the question of when philosophers start expanding the range of questions they consider is also entangled with professional structures, the way in which philosophy is professionalized. That I think are really problematic. So, you know, part of what happened to me to cause the midlife crisis, but also to enable me to do whatever I wanted philosophically to get out of it was that I had tenure, I was a full professor, I got through the professional hoops and I had total job security. So a, kind of a, a pressure on younger philosophers and younger thinkers not to pursue the questions they might really want to pursue with the freedom they might want to pursue them 
in academia is that they have to get through the professional hoops first. And I, it's hard for me to untangle that from this thought that has really something to it, which is that life experience makes a difference and that one should be open to the, having your philosophical thinking shaped by your life experience. And I, I think that doesn't really correlate with age. There are a lot of middle-aged people whose experience of life is very narrow and limited and mine is in some notable ways. And then there are a lot of young people who have experiences of life that are much more world-shattering than anything I've gone through. So it's not quite age, but yeah, I, 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 I do resonate to that. This, there's an anecdote I tell in, the, in Life is Hard that I hope comes across with the humor of it, but also the humility of it, which is that when I was in grad school, when I took my, they called them general exams, but it was like a special field exam. And it was about moral philosophy, but I was interested in it in, a, in the abstract style of a certain kind of analytic philosopher. And the exam report was basically very positive. I've forgotten all the positive stuff. What I remember is that it said at the end that my ideas had not been tested in the crucible of direct moral experience. And at the time, my friends and I just thought this was hilarious, and we just made fun of it. But it was actually <laughs> just, in retrospect, obviously a serious limitation of how I was approaching philosophy then. So I can certainly say from my own personal experience, it took getting to a certain point in life and experiencing certain difficulties in life to open up my sense of what, as a philosopher, I could and should be thinking about. Um, so that's a very rambling answer to the question. I mean, I, it's, I find it hard to generalize, and I think it's so entangled with, with this problem that young philosophers, young academics have their range of interests narrowed by the profession that I'm like, eh, how do you disentangle these two? Mm. I mean, maybe you can't disentangle them. So I, I do think, you know, as somebody who went through academia but decided not to become an academic, although, you know, life is long, you'll, you never know where I'll, where I'll be in 20 years. <laughs> but um in in part because I wanted that freedom and that range that I didn't I didn't see for myself sort of going through the professional system. The topic is close to my heart. So I I think that life, especially when you're young, does involve a lot of compromise. And um, there probably is by structurally like some focus on the telic more so than let's say once you've accomplished it. So even if academia has a particular setup that's distinctive, perhaps you can generalize to the idea of when you're a novice, you have to prove yourself. Um, when you're a professional, or however you want to say it, uh, a master, you've been promoted, you no longer have to prove yourself. And that brings opportunities and it brings challenges, right? Because um, once you're successful, so what then? If, if you've identified as someone who, who's getting validation from pursuing this endeavor and now you've achieved it and, you know, the Messiah didn't come, so now what? <laughs> so it can be... Uh, lonely to be successful and lonely to be unsuccessful i think in in any endeavor that requires this sort of um discipline this 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 and and this compromise i just i totally agree with that and i think that sometimes it, there are enabling illusions that go along with it that you you have a kind of false vision of what it will be like to be on the other side of this giant mountain either in life or in your profession and one kind of midlife slash mid career recognition is that often 
the the promised land is not, it's not quite what you thought it was going to be or it's it's more of a uh, it was more of a a kind of fantasy than a reality i i just realized cuz before i i caught myself i said life is long you never know but of course life is not necessarily long that was a little bit of what heidegger would call an inauthentic slip where my uh maybe my own fear of death uh sort of allows me to project that, oh, I didn't give up being a, a philosophy professor. It's still possible. It's still out there, right? Um, in, in fact, uh, and I suppose that's true, but but more, more likely is that I have given up on it and I have sort of ambivalence about that for all kinds of reasons, some of which are just structural to being in the present moment and, um, you know, the grass is always greener kind of thing. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, part of the midlife experience is starting to feel like you can gauge what having another, if you're lucky, 30 to 40 years means. It's not an abstract quantity. You can sort of look back in this last decade and think, I've got another, if I'm lucky, three or four of those. And often you look back and think, eh, what, what, really, what really happened in that decade exactly? Or, you know, uh, how much, how, how likely is, is it that the next decades will be eventful or meaningful in, in the ways those were? Maybe a different kind of meaning is going to have to replace the telic jumping through hurdles of people's 20s and 30s. One of the things I love about your writing is you talk about grief and absurdity and failure and like topics that, yes, they're in the philosophical canon, but like to sort of address them explicitly, you typically think, one typically thinks of these as outside you know, this is the stuff of poetry or literature or, or film, you know, um, f f philosophy focuses on the good and successful life, not in sort of all the things that make it uh, feel the opposite. So I appreciate that. Um, but one of the topics that you address is justice and the, the need to feel that you're, you know, that you're acting justly and advancing the cause of justice. And I had a tension with that, with that chapter. Um, you mentioned Adorno as a negative example, as a pessimist who sort of um, didn't think it was possible to, in his words, live the wrong life rightly or something like that. Um, <laughs> but um, to, for me, justice does have this telic feature um, where you either succeed or you fail um, on the basis of whether your cause, uh, I, I guess, got recognition or moved the needle. And so um, is that a fair statement of, of, of the experience of justice or is it possible to, to treat social justice or any kind of justice um, any kind of political activism from an atelic place, which to me just experientially, I don't, I don't get that vibe. Let's say when I'm <laughs> hanging around activist types, they, they tend to be very goal oriented. And, and I personally find that to be in tension with the kind of philosophical and leisurely mode that, that, that I very much enjoy, uh, when uh, let's say I'm, I'm around people who want to talk about books. So I do think that there's potential for tension there and that when you're, fighting to make things better, the goal matters. And you're thinking in telic terms of achieving a, a kind of goal. I would say, let me say something about the tension and then something about resolving it. So as well as the, the there's this distinction between telic or goal-directed activities and atelic and a sort of process-directed activities where you value the process. There's another distinction here that I think is useful between what I call ameliorative value, where the value is that of solving a problem or meeting a need we'd rather do without, like getting rid of something bad or unjust or problematic. And then what I call existential value, where something is worthwhile but isn't problem solving. And I do think the other kind of 
difficulty with the pursuit of justice. And the reason why at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle regards the life, the political moral life as second rate, is that he thinks of it as ameliorative. It's about solving problems. And in a way you can see there's something unfortunate about that. If all we could do was to solve problems and make things not positively bad, what would be the point of life at all? Like there has to be something that's positively good that isn't just solving a problem. That's what makes life worth living, and that's why I call it existential value. So I sort of agree with you that if it weren't for the values of leisure and philosophy and art and companionship, these things that have existential value, none of it would really make sense. I think the problem is we then have to face the, the balance of the two, like we, that we, ha we can't ignore the value of amelioration. So if we're sort of torn by these two different kinds of value, and I think the way Aristotle ends the Nicomachean Ethics by saying, well, the existential value of contemplation takes priority is not a, a, a kind of morally stable compromise. So then we're, we're thinking, okay, so one of our obligations is to fight for justice. It's ameliorative. It's also telic. I do think there's there are ways to find atelic, find value in the atelic there too. There's a passage I'm not going to remember, although I could I could look it up, in which one of my heroes, John Berger, talks about protest and says, you know, at certain points, the point of protesting injustice is not that you think there's any chance of making a difference. It is, as he puts it, to save the present moment. That there's value in simply registering one's opposition, regardless of what comes of it. So I think even if activists are goal-directed, so social justice activists are goal-directed, often I think they will recognize that there's a kind of value in just the sheer atelic activity of protest, and that that matters even if everything fails. So there's, I think there's some scope for that, but it, it's true that there it would be really, you'd be kidding yourself if you didn't think that what mattered most was actually making a difference. So you described a beautiful tension just now between kind of the Aristotelian emphasis on contemplation and the modern emphasis on sort of achieving outcomes. And you see that difference in ethical theory as well, not just in Aristotle, but basically like the ancients seemed for the most part to focus on character and virtue. Um, and they, to my understanding, were not so focused on structural questions of like, why is it that these people have these virtues and these people don't? <laughs> they just kind of assume that you're kind of, you can build these habits in a vacuum almost, um, or maybe a certain class can work on them and then everybody else, whatever. Um, but then with John Stuart Mill and the moderns, it seems like we've sort of abandoned character as everything has mostly become structural and mostly become outcome oriented and impact. So, and focusing on maximizing your impact. And so I know like um, a lot of activists, not all, cause you can be an activist for anything, but sort of self-identify as anti-capitalist or, you know, challenging the status quo in terms of um, co coming from the left in terms of a, a focus on a lack of egalitarianism, let's say in economic terms um, to, to, to choose one example. But I actually um, see them as very much a part of the modern industrial revolutionary movement, um, which isn't a, a critique of them per se, but it's really just to say, I, I see them as having much more in common with the capitalists um, than not vis-a-vis -vis this focus on outcomes and measurable outcomes. And I see both of them as kind of on the same side and the, and the real enemy being, uh, let's say the ancients uh, with their naive 
uh, appreciation of 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 just old fashioned things like courage and kindness and and what have you. So um, I don't know how do you how do you square the circle or not between sort of the the focus on character and virtue on the one hand and sort of impact on the other, which again is another way of saying the telic, but I think it's just a different a different frame for it. I mean, I wonder if it's useful here to to draw some f- more distinctions. So there's a kind of ten there is a currently both influential and uh, hi- highly uh, pr- prominent mode of activism in the form of effective altruism uh, and the the kind of earn to give approach and the economic analysis of, or kind of quasi-economic analysis of various different kinds of charitable interventions. And this leads to the current fashion for a certain kind of calculating long-termism. There I see the critique you're making seems particularly sharp. It seems like part of the problem with effective altruists is that they are very much thinking will work within the current structure and their relationship to ethical virtues is, uh, let's say, ambivalent, uh, uh, both in the case of particular people like Sam Bankman-Fried, but also in their philosophical thinking, it has a kind of secondary place. It's less clear to me that the the Thielic concern with outcomes has the same kind of problematic role in activists who are sort of anti-capitalists, who are thinking about the structures in which people live, depending on what the critique of capitalism is, one kind of way of thinking about it is what capitalism is giving us is a a superficial kind of freedom to make consumer choices. But there's a deeper kind of freedom that it's frustrating. And that deeper kind of freedom in which people are able to flourish is what, to make that available to people, is what will require structural change. And that deeper kind of freedom it's not necessarily articulated in terms of eudaimonia, these sort of you know, ancient philosophical frame, framings, but it can often draw on ways of thinking about human flourishing that are much richer than, uh, that, that understand it not in terms of desire, satisfaction, or consumption, but that to make space for a wider range of people to have the kinds of non-consumerist flourishing lives that the ancients might have praised will require structural change. So it's I'm sure there's ways in which this can get distorted and and be imperfect, but I guess I would hold out for a, a reconciliation of the recognition that human flourishing is connected with virtue and is connected with art and contemplation and relationships and the kind of broadly anti-capitalist structural critique that I'm in some form sympathetic to. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think um, I think where I was going is just um, to, to, to repeat your terms, the, the over-focus on the ameliorative that I, that I find um, across the board, regardless of ideology. So that, that's what I wanted to kind of emphasize was that whether you're a left winger, a right winger, sort of radical or centrist, uh, it seems like more often than not, um, and this could just be because of the nature of social media and marketing rather than, let's say, pure reasons, you're you're playing a super ameliorative game. And so from that point of view, like if an alien were to look at us and observe our activities, I think they would find a lot more commonality 
Um, and then the real difference would be with the ancients who are just like what's like totally devaluing the ameliorative relative to the the thing in itself. Okay, that seems when you put it that way, I think that's right. So there's there's a way in which the more our lives are consumed by the ameliorative, the more you can look at it and say, what is the point ultimately of all this? Like in order we have to stay in touch with the point of all the amelioration, which is to get to enable people to live lives that have this sort of existential, non-ameliorative, non-problem-solving value. And there's a real risk that the ameliorative just sort of occludes all of that. I mean, I, th I think of this myself in a in a in my own little world in terms of public philosophy, the way philosophical work that is public facing. Because very often when people do public facing work, that has two meanings. One is that it's uh, addressed to a wider audience. And the other is it's our, it, it's philosophy addressed to social problems. And that's, I think there's value in that, but it does tend to, to prioritize the ameliorative uses of philosophy to criticize various kinds of social injustice, for instance, or come up with philosophical approaches to the problem of climate change. All of that seems valuable to me, but I, I think it will be really a shame if public facing work by philosophers came to be too narrowly focused there, as opposed to philosophers, e even my work is sort of somewhat ameliorative in that it's about the good life. I feel like there's a lot of absolutely thrilling philosophical work being done these days in metaphysics, say, that it, or philosophy of mind that is not ameliorative at all. It's not trying to solve some practical problem, but actually it would be fascinating to people if it could be made more available. And that's a case where I totally agree with you. I, I, I don't want us to lose sight of the value of sharing with as wide an audience as possible the most abstruse, non-applied parts of philosophy, which are often the things that, I mean, certainly those are the things that drew me into philosophy in the first place, was this these amazing abstract questions about the nature of reality that were not going to change how I behave in the near future, but were absolutely gripping to me. Heidegger has a line uh, in one of his writings that the the modern age is in darkness or in concealment or you know so, so, sort of like we're we're in a state of plight. Um, and he's very melodramatic because we lack an understanding of the nature of pain, death, and love. And um, I don't know why, but emotionally that does hit me, even though Heidegger comes with his baggage. And I feel like you are someone who has written about those things, especially pain. And um, so maybe my, I, this is a multi-part question, but is Heidegger right? Um, why, why are people, why are more people not thinking about pain, death, and love, or are they? And um, what does it mean to think about those philosophically rather than just in an everyday way? Good question. I don't, let's, I, how much people are thinking about them these days or not, I don't really know. I do think, it's easier for me to frame that in terms of philosophy, where I have a pretty positive view of the state of the field. But I do think there are ways in which topics like pain, death, and love often get treated superficially in analytic philosophy. And it's partly to do with a desire to restrict oneself to a philosophical mode of detached argument and not sort of dive into the, something a bit more phenomenological about the the character of of our experiential relationship to those things. 
So I do think in a way I'm sympathetic to the thought that philosophy has a, could be helped by regaining a, a kind of more intimate connection with pain, death, and love, and other things too, grief, failure, uh, you know, other forms of suffering that make up the texture of life and that are, are, are lost somewhat if we theorize about them in too detached a way. So, you know, a way this comes out in my, in life is hard and in my own experience was that I have a chronic pain condition and that has led me to think quite a lot about the experience of pain. And part of what I think about it is just pain gets listed by philosophers as one of the, one of the bad things in life. And often that's the end of what they say about, about it. The question, why is it bad? I thought is, well, it just feels bad, right? It's intrinsically bad. I think that's an incredibly superficial answer to the question why pain is bad. Pain is bad. In so, it's very interesting to me how bad pain is and in so many so many ways. It's, it's, it's bad because it obstructs your relationship to other things by bringing your body into focus. It sort of creates this cloudiness in what would otherwise be the transparency of your experience of the world and other people. It's bad because if it's extended or persisting, you sort of lose touch with the possibility of a future free of pain. There's a lot of anxiety that comes along with it. And there's also losing touch with what it was like not to be in pain. I think deeper reflection on those things is something philosophy could gain from. I mean, that's why I, I started doing it myself. And I think the same is true of, think, of death and love. I think that there's a lot to be gained from something more phenomenological, kind of literary poetic, and that philosophy at least has lost, lost touch with that. I mean, whether people in general these days have lost touch with it, whether it's sort of a, a societal or systemic thing, I just don't really know about. I often kind of think of this as not as we moderns have lost touch with these things or something, or contemporary people have lost touch with them, so much as philosophy has come to be a little bit detached from the reality of lived experience. And the reality of lived experience is often we are talking with our friends and loved ones about love and death and pain. It's just that we're not, we don't think of ourselves as necessarily doing philosophy then, and maybe maybe we should. You'll, you'll help me re re refresh this this quote, but Wittgenstein has that that image of philosophy as helping the fly get out of the bottle. What? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, maybe maybe in your in in light of what you said, this is a problem specific to philosophers, and then right, a la Wittgenstein, the goal of philosophy is to to help specifically philosophers unlearn philosophy in some way. It's like this kind of like. Uh, Ouroboros or something, you know, <laughs> you got you got yourself into a, a little bit of a a bind, and now you have to get out of it using the very thing that got you there, or something like this. But ordinary people don't suffer from this specific illness called philosophy, so they they don't need they don't need the help. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it might connect up with your earlier question about life experience, where I think philosophers tend to suppress themselves in doing philosophy a bit. So, and this is again to do with the professionalization, because. The skills that are taught in graduate school, the ones that are most readily teachable, are various kinds of analytical, argumentative skills, skills of detachment and criticism. And I think those skills are very important, but they they tend, if you think of that as exclusively what philosophy is about, you're suppressing the role of life experience and one's lived engagement with the people around you in enabling you to think about how to live. 
And there's no reason to restrict philosophy to what can be, as it were, taught more professionally. It's, I, I think I can't remember if I put it this way in the book, but I sometimes find myself saying, you know, philosophers are people too. Like they also have all the feelings. Um, they, they, and they. There's no reason they shouldn't draw on that when they're doing philosophy, except for a kind of professional dispensation that makes that seem not quite how it's done. But yeah, I, I, I sort of my sense is my reaction to the worry that philosophy has got a little narrow here is is less to say let's let's escape philosophy as to say let's expand our understanding of what philosophers are allowed to do so that this all counts as philosophy so we don't mm. let's sort of make the fly bottle bigger or something <laughs> or i don't know quite i don't know how to how to riff on the metaphor properly but yeah something like that so one definition of philosophy i think is that it's the search for knowledge um, right and and sort of the it, it it gets off the ground on the assumption that people think they have knowledge when they don't um, I guess I'm thinking now of Socrates, who maybe insist, insisted on not having knowledge, and then that insistence is what qualified him as a philosopher in, in contradistinction to others. But if we're expanding the category, maybe we don't value knowledge as much, or we don't seek knowledge, or we seek other ways of knowing. So what uh, what Socrates would call knowledge um, just doesn't exist what, uh, what knowledge is. So you mentioned phenomenology before. Uh, if we go with Heidegger's definition of phenomenology as letting things appear as they are, um, that doesn't seem to be knowledge, but it does seem to be meaningful, elucidative. Um, I guess in his terms, it would be unconcealing. So you are doing something, you are gaining something, but what are you gaining? It's not necessarily the kind of thing that you would put into a propositional statement and you know it would either check out or it wouldn't check out. So that's really I, I love that quote. I don't know Heidegger well at all, so I'm 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 glad to be learning learning about this from you. I mean that, that I I definitely resonate to that idea of letting things appear as they are being pretty central to our ethical lives, and a lot of ethical engagement takes the form of trying to just see the world as it is. After this is also an idea I get from Iris Murdoch, um, who was interested in Heidegger actually, but that has a moral dimension: letting things appear as they are comes with a certain orientation to how things are and that that is very different from coming up with an argument with premises and a conclusion. I would be inclined to say though there too that I, I would want to include it as a form of knowledge rather than saying this isn't knowledge so let's not overvalue knowledge. My instinct is to say our, if our conception of knowledge doesn't incorporate the ways in which metaphor and description that aren't in the form of argument constitute forms of knowledge, then our conception of knowledge is too narrow. But you know that that may not be a deep deep di difference as opposed to just a, a kind of a desire to not to lose for this kind of letting things appear as they are the status that knowledge has. To, there's a, a risk in saying it's not really knowledge that it that's going to seem to be denigrating it. Whereas I think. No, I, I, I think, it, and also, or denying that it's really cognitive, that it's somehow just a matter of projection onto the world. Whereas I think, no, seeing things as they are is a cognitive endeavor in which you can get it right mm. or get it wrong. How does that relate to the category of intuition? Do you do you think of intuition as sort of in a similar boat as uh, I don't know the poetic or the literary or the phenomenological, and that it's sort of this thing that people, uh, some people dismiss as like, that's not really, that's not sophisticated. Um, that's not rigorous. 
but other people like the romantics uh the post-kantian german philosophers actually like elevated it to the highest form maybe they elevated it too much <laughs> because they were polemically kind of insisting almost on irrationality i mean they knew better than than to just um promote irrationality but it was kind of like test testing the boundaries exact of, of cognition it's another great and really hard question i it's entangled a bit with there's a lot of debates in contemporary philosophy about the roles of intuition in philosophical methodology that is that that sort of cloud how i would think about this question i mean here's a kind of thing i believe that i think is relevant to this i think an experience you can have in philosophy is that someone has an argument and you can't see what's wrong with the argument but you you just think that can't be right this isn't i don't want to go this way there's something wrong about this where this is going if as it were unless you could win the argument you had to concede uh you'd be forced to concede i think very often in those circumstances people should not they should resist they should they, they should say i i trust that there's something wrong more than i trust the argument i don't know how to say what's wrong with the argument but i'm going to find it or if i can't find it then i can't find it yet but there's i shouldn't so i think following the argument where it leads is a kind of ideal that philosophers sometimes have that i think i don't i mean there's different things to mean by that but on one interpretation of that i don't really think one should and that's partly you could think of that as the trust of a certain kind of intuition that often our ability to know not by way of argument how to think about a topic is more reliable than our the, the best arguments we can come up with that that our knowledge often outruns what we can argue for and that it will be a, a mistake for philosophers to say well I, I guess I now have to accept this conclusion that seems seems you know impossible to me because I don't know how to refute it. Um, that's like you know accepting that everything there are no heaps because you just don't know what's wrong with the Sorites paradox of you know the paradox of the heap. There, I think lots of people agree. Yeah, that that would not be the right response. Figuring out what's wrong with the Sorites paradox is a very difficult thing, but the right response is not. Well, philosophers have shown that there are no heaps. Um, and I think a lot of philosophies, more philosophy is like that than philosophers are always comfortable acknowledging. Hmm. That's a great answer. So one thing that got me thinking about, and I, I'm like an amateur at chess. I'm, I'm not good enough to really know what good means, but I do enjoy playing for fun. And um, there was this sensational uh, sort of cheating scandal recently uh, you you might have followed, but um, one of I, yeah, I heard about it a little bit via Twitter. So my knowledge is the kind of knowledge you have when you've seen like three tweets about something. So yeah, okay, fill well, me in. I'm gonna yeah. give you the, I'm gonna give you my hearsay version of the hearsay, okay. which is um, that there was a guy who was using some kind of artificial intelligence um, synced up to his uh, like it was he had a bead in his butt telling him uh, whether a move that he was about to make was good or bad. And um, the computer or system telling him whether the move is good or bad is so good that um, it it knows the kinds of patterns that no human being could know. And so this is one of the reasons why it's cheating is because he's relying upon an appraisal of whether a move is good or bad that he he is not at the level himself to make. 
And so even just knowing whether a move is good or bad from a computer's point of view is like uh, is 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 going beyond his actual understanding. So he's simulating understanding. And so this was apparent to the other player because the other player saw that he was making goods moves that made no human sense, but that that had to be that had to be a computer telling him to do it because they were like so now to to bring it back to your example, basically it's the opposite. It's it's the computer, it's the computer saying something that our intuition is like this doesn't make sense, um, but by following the computer you end up getting the better outcome. So, uh, and I you you have the same thing as well. Let's say in in quant in investing where the the problem is when human beings tamper with the algorithm. But if they would just defer and let the algorithm do the thing, even though it doesn't make sense to them, they would get a better result. So. If we accept that premise, that there are situations where actually the computer does know better than us, and I gave, I guess, two examples, one chess and one investing, um, why should we think that philosophy is different? Like, what ontologically differentiates philosophy from, let's say, winning a strategy game? So I want to agree that in certain cases, forms of argument and thinking that are really unintuitive to us are nevertheless highly reliable and sources of knowledge or accuracy that we couldn't otherwise, that we wouldn't otherwise achieve. And maybe, you know, quantitative trading is one of those. And maybe, I think someone said this, but it wasn't someone I think said about when AlphaGo uh, was uh, beating everyone, someone said about one of its moves that there was not a human move. And, I, you know, I, I think that's the same kind of phenomenon. I think this is a very deep, hard philosophical question. I think it comes down to a deep puzzle about how philosophical knowledge is possible at all. How is it possible for us to be, as it were, non-reliable about these questions about the nature of reality in a way that's not an accident? We're not just fluking it. There's something something yeah, non-accidental about the way in which our thinking tracks reality. And I think there are stories about how that's possible that have to do with the nature of thought. So broadly speaking, the answer to how it's even possible for us to know the ethical truth or truths about aspects of the world that are not sort of materially affecting us, I think has to do with the idea that the only way it's possible for our thoughts to really be about that reality is if they're in a kind of non-accidental contact with it. Well, we couldn't, in all of these cases, I think the answer has something to do with the thought. We couldn't even think about um, God or ethics or mathematics or the deep topics of metaphysics if it weren't for the fact that thought is by its nature uh, non-accidentally attached to its subject matter. So I think there's something special in these cases about the nature of thought that explains how our thinking can be a source of knowledge. So if you had a computer that was coming up with answers to ethical questions, and they seemed crazy, but we were like, this computer's really has been great at doing chess, I would say, is this one of the subject matters where genuine thought is crucial to be, you have to actually be in cognitive touch with the reality for it to be, to be non-accidentally reliable about it. And I guess I think that's true about the, the topics of philosophy in a way that we couldn't 
we couldn't answer this question for the AI. We couldn't explain how it was in contact with the reality. Whereas in the quantitative trading case or the chess case, where what we're dealing with is correlations between winning moves and computer processing, we have a story about how it's non-accidentally reliable that makes it reasonable for us to trust those those verdicts. But this is all highly speculative. I think it really does come down to the absolutely fundamental questions about the nature of philosophical knowledge and the possibility of mm. philosophical knowledge. That's great. So now I'm just to circle back to justice a little bit, since you, you mentioned ethics and AI. Um, I guess one of the one of the points of quant trading or or chess moves from an AI point of view is that there's a right answer and a less right answer. Like there's an optimal move in every situation, and I think according to one understanding of justice, there's an optimal move. Um, there's an optimal sequence. There's an optimal outcome, and the problem is human nature uh, or human preference or something. But then weirdly in liberalism. We, we chuck that because we also give people the right, the right to be wrong, the right to prefer things. Um, and we weirdly say that part of the optimal thing is that it's suboptimal because we recognize the dignity of difference that and pluralism that allows people to prefer different things, including maybe things that um, for themselves and for the collective lead to injustice in both process and outcome. So um, <laughs> there is a question in this. I think the question is, should the problem of justice be thought of as an AI problem? And then the and then the problem is, and then the secondary problem is how do we persuade people to do what the algorithm says, what philosophy says is just? Or um, is the difference between ethics uh, on the one hand or, or, or politics on the one hand and chess on the other, that there actually isn't a right answer because the answer is whatever we want it to be. And that's what democracy is. But then you're going to fall into the problem that people prefer all kinds of horrible things. So where are you going to put the guardrail there to say, actually, we want AI to step in. We want a constitution to step, to step in and say, like, these are the red lines. So it feels like um, political philosophy, especially in the modern age, one of the problems that, that we have to deal with is the, the experience of tension between this sort of inhuman view of justice and the human experience of liberty. And like liberty is not something that we want computers to have or we want computers to feel. And that's actually why we trust them, because they're not at liberty, at least in our experience of them so far. So I'm not I I'm not a political philosopher, and that's partly to do with uh the contingencies of of training and so on. But it's also because I do find these I find political philosophy unbelievably difficult. I sort of think that it's the hardest. You know, sometimes people think of Logic and metaphysics is the really hard areas. I think ugh, compared to political philosophy, this is this is peanuts. I, so I I think that somehow or other, I think the right view here has to has to be. It's not that anything goes. There are right answers. It's just that the right answer has to do with uh, a certain kind of combination of pluralism about value and the range of lives that are worth living, and an ideal of pot political participation. On which no one is is dictating to others, and kind of democratic structures have to ensure that. So there's a way in which, if you had an AI dictating policy, you would have, in effect, uh, you'd have a dictator. You would have you'd you'd have policies that weren't the product of participation in the way that legitimate 
political you know, decisions have to be. On the other hand, you could say, yeah, yeah, but still, it can't be decisions all the way back, right? They have to, you can't vote on everything because as you find when you try to run a faculty meeting, you first have to decide how how will the vote be run? And if you could vote on that, you have to decide, well, how will the vote on that be run? So at a certain point, there have to be sort of given political structures that are not themselves subject to democratic decision-making. There ha- that, you know, in effect, there has to be some kind of constitution. And there you might say, well, that doesn't have to be the product of decision-making. Could, could AI answer those questions? And there I think the, the problems with sort of deferring to AI have less to do with the role of participation or democratic involvement in politics and more to do with the thought, the thoughts we were having before, really, about whether if you give the AI sufficient training data and ask it to extrapolate from the training data, you actually have any right to trust the results. And I think in chess, you give it the training data, then you try it on some new chess games and you're like, it keeps winning. We have we have some independent ever basis for trusting these results. Or the the quantitative trading case, the the machine learning algorithm tells you which investments to make, and you make money. We don't have anything like that in the ethical case. We sort of trained an AI on a bunch of clear ethical cases, and then said, "Hey, here's a case it hasn't considered, and here's what it tells you to do. Should we trust it?" I think we we don't. <laughs> We wouldn't have the kind of basis for thinking that its extrapolations were reliable that we might have in the other cases. Maybe there's some way to to overcome that, but it, I, I think there's a way in which human ethical judgment is sort of entangled with ethical reality, that the reality isn't sort of independent of human ethical judgment in the way that you know the reality well actually the market is a bad example of this since it clearly is entangled with ethical judgment but you know the the reality of of chess doesn't depend on on uh on which moves we think are good it has to do with the rules of the game so i totally agree with you that we should expand the category of knowledge or um i'm willing i'm willing to to agree with that formulation it 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 speaks to me um it still leaves me with the question of what knowledge is though uh, but I, I certainly, you know, I certainly love um, reading thinkers like Simone Weil and and Kafka and uh, Merleau-Ponty and 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 you know many spiritual writings as well. And I I consider them to be touching the same place in my mind and my heart as let's say uh, Searle and Austin. <laughs> um, but. Um, You've had on your podcast this guy uh, Liam Kofi Bright, who's a big uh, <laughs> he's he's a he's a real philosopher and he's also a big Twitter personality, and he coined the term uh, "sexy murder poets" to refer to a lot of the people that I love <laughs> reading and find deeply meaningful, and that I think you would say are champions of the existential rather than the ameliorative, and. We could list a bunch of these people, but they tend to be, you know, broadly what's called continental philosophers, uh, who write in a poetic style. Some might say obfuscatory, uh, opaque, um, suggestive, etc. Um, if we expand the category of knowledge, then maybe they get included in the canon. If we delimit it, they get excluded. So um, Liam, who's a big fan of Carnap and positivism, thinks that the he calls them sexy murder poets because he, he thinks that they um in 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 large enough doses they're really bad for society and for sort of democratic goals so 
in light of the conversations that we've been having about kind of ethics and democracy, um, is it coincidental or not coincidental um, that so many of these writers who um, write in a phenomenological mode and a literary mode um, tend to be hostile to liberalism, or at least they're they're not so gung ho about it. You know, at best they're sort of reluctant. Um, but they're they're sort of not your dyed in the wool Rawlsians. They're they're more romantic in their ambition, and their politics, whether left or right, tend to be more radical, more revolutionary. So why is that the case? And if it is the case, then is that a cautionary? Is there is is Liam right? Should we be cautious about? Um, swallowing their uh, their style and their arguments, given that they're kind of challenging the rules of the analytic game. Yeah, I'm not sure what I think of this contrast. He has the, the sexy murder poets on one side and the basically pleasant bureaucrats on the other side. And I, I sort of get the contrast he's drawing, I suppose, but it's not obvious to me that they line up with radical views on the one hand and more conservative views or liberal views on the other, exactly. I suppose here's a big picture issue that this raises, and maybe this is a way of answering your question. Suppose you start thinking, you know, the argument, let's take ethics. Argument has a limited role to play in ethics, more limited than, than certain kinds of Kantian philosophers, for instance, might hope it does, or Platonic philosophers might hope it does, that at a certain level, there's a, a kind of poetic appreciation. There's metaphor. There's kind of there's a kind of knowledge that you can't articulate into argument, and it plays a significant role in ethics. And so we find ourselves thinking, yeah, ethical knowledge is one thing. What you can argue people into is something else. I'm sympathetic to that view about ethical knowledge, but I I would want to divorce it from questions about politics because I, I would think. It's one thing to say that articulate argument that others can appreciate is a precondition of knowledge. I'd say, no, it's not. Sometimes you know stuff and you can't argue for it. And other people have arguments, you can't say what's wrong with them, but you still know they're wrong. It's not a precondition of knowledge. And in fact, for, for kind of regress-like reasons and others, I think we're going to end up when we have knowledge always relying on forms of knowing that we can't give further articulate arguments for. But there's a separate question politically, like how, how, what kind of role in politics should that kind of knowledge have? So I've, I've always been inclined to the view that without having a clear position in political philosophy, that the, that the demand for articulate argument is, while not a, it's not a precondition of knowledge, but it might be a precondition of just political interaction, that we're not simply uh, enforcing policies on the basis of sort of esoteric knowledge that we can't share with others. So I'd be inclined to say, let, let's be sexy murder poets about ethical knowledge, but not draw political conclusions directly from that. Of course, you could draw, it's not incompatible with having authoritarian political views or radical anti-liberal political views in one way or another. But I, I think those two can be disconnected. I think it, it's the... The, what the culprit is the expectation that our epistemology or our account of knowledge and our account of politics are going to line line up in a certain kind of way that I suspect they just won't. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, it got me thinking about a weird example from legal philosophy. There's a a guy named Robert Cover who he's deceased, but he was a professor at Yale Law. He might have become a Supreme Court justice if he had lived um, longer. 
And he was part of this movement called Law and Literature that was actually trying to expand the the category of of what we can consider legally important. Um, and he wrote a, a landmark essay called Nomos and Narrative that was drawing attention to the fact that in every culture, pretty much, um, you have legal codes accompanied by, by narrative. Uh, every constitution has its declaration of independence. The, the Torah is not just the Ten Commandments and subsequent laws. It's also a story about a people that left Egypt um, and seeking the promised land and so on. So um, in this essay, he goes after a certain type of judge who gives the opinion only on the basis of like a technicality. And he encourages the, the court to use its um, jurisgenerative power, not just its juristpathic power, meaning juristpathic meaning deciding the law and the decision, the outcome, jurisgenerative meaning expanding our understanding and relationship to the law. And he says that the court owes people on, on all sides um, sort of an account, a narrative of what's going on beyond just like this is the right thing. So I don't know exactly how that fits with this uh, sexy murder poet thing, but it seemed to me like um, what he was trying to do is say, no, the law isn't just pleasantly bureaucratic or unpleasantly bureaucratic. Um, it, it should recognize its power to shape narrative and it should wield that responsibly, even, even in a situation where one would disagree with the narrative if you're the losing side. Um, you're sort of you 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 should be able to say the court disagreed with me for narrative reasons and not just because like I got dinged on a on a you know subsection of tax law or something like this. So his his example was um, Bob Jones versus the U.S., which uh, Bob Jones wanted to be tax exempt while having the policy um, that interracial dating was outlawed amongst its student body, and they lost. But Cover was criticizing the court for sort of um, demurring in the way that they delivered the 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 sentence, and that like he he saw it as a missed opportunity for the court to sort of say we're against non discrimination, as opposed to just like here's the technical reason why you don't get your tax exemption. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very interesting. I mean, lots of issues here about sort of interpretation and the role of judgment that that that. This is sort of way in which you can't write a law that doesn't call for interpretive judgment in its application. And so the surrounding context, which might be narrative, for instance, is going to be crucial to trying to constrain the inevitably open-ended inter future interpretation of, of a law too. So, uh, and also this is going to become an issue in the next, when the Supreme Court goes back to affirmative action is that the the legal arguments for affirmative action were as a matter of convenience, sort of were ones that were selected as a matter of convenience. They weren't in fact the kinds of arguments for affirmative action lots of supporters of affirmative action really believe in. But now it's going to be those arguments that determine how the Supreme Court rules. And so, yeah, there's, there's a kind of discrepancy between the kind of moral and political context in which these debates are taking place and the, the kind of legal frameworks that are, are trying to adjudicate them. Yeah, this is a really interesting issue. Mm. I think I think of the Agadah, that would be the Hebrew word for story or narrative, as sort of part of a, a cluster of things that we've discussed. So I see it as being kind of the the friend of phenomenology and poetics and sort of um, all, all these modes of thinking that expand the category of knowledge. 
and that also um, lead us to the insight that the human being is different than a machine um, because of our sort of singular meaning-making faculty that accompanies just um, processing whether something is true or false or valid or invalid or whatever. So um, I, I see it as very dear and maybe the thing that if we want to protect against AI encroachment, we should kind of double down on. But I also think that Liam is right that these mushy things are ripe for corruption and abuse and tyranny in a way um, because they don't have the same accountability structure that you get from AI, which is like, look, this is the rule I followed based upon this premise and this is how I got there. And if I'm wrong, show me. Because it's much harder to refute a phenomenological expression of, well, um, I, you know, this is what it was like for me to be pregnant. Um, and then how do you extrapolate from that to like all pregnant people? So I agree with you about the sort of the role of accountability in politics. Exactly how it's spelled out, I don't know, but some something like that seems central to responsible political interaction is that we we make arguments that can be accountable to others. I'm not sure that AI really solves that problem, though, or meets that standard, since one of the things people are kind of concerned about, about the way machine learning, these networks work now, is that often no one has any clue what algorithm was followed. That's to say, it's completely opaque how the algorithm reached its verdicts. All we know is you trained it on this data. It was very reliable on new cases. And now we've given it this case. <laughs> so... <laughs> Okay, uh, and there are, there are circumstances into which maybe that's fine. So if it's about predicting on the basis of x-rays whether this tumor is gonna become cancerous, you think, I don't particularly care how it does it. If it's just way more reliable at predicting that than doctors, that's useful information, let's act on it. But when it comes to the kinds of, when it comes to political decision-making, I think there's a real, Actually, the, deferring to algorithms isn't going to give us the kind of accountability we want because we're going to have so little idea how the decision was being made. We're going to lose the articulateness that we that we want, which is one reason why I, I, I don't have firm views on these issues. But it, although it's true that human judges, for instance, make mistakes, there's a way in which there there's a kind of relationship you can have with a judge who's articulating reasons that is different from the kind of relationship you have with an algorithm that's making you know, bail decisions or something where we, we just don't have any idea how the, or we have so little idea anyway, how exactly the decision was reached and we can't, there's no interlocutor there. Well, just to bring it full circle, the, the machine might have the ability to simulate knowledge, but it doesn't have anamnesis. So it does, it, this goes back exactly to, I think, what Plato's concern was about writing, which is, and sophistry more generally, which is the ability to seem like you know without actually having the crucible of life experience <laughs> to justify that, um, justify in scare quotes. And I guess, um, you know, I've, I've seen a, a bunch of takes on like GPT chat and all of that. Um, and it's just funny because I don't see it as particularly new. I see it as very much continuous with the philosophical worry about writing more generally, that it's making us midwits. <laughs> and sort of, um, yeah, you know, that's a nice party trick. But like, remember, there's still this thing called philosophy that's different. You know, don't don't rely upon the machine. And, and philosophy is a custodian of some fundamentally human thing. So I guess um, maybe in our remaining time, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on 
philosophical training, both in the academy and without, and sort of how we can focus on the thing that makes us different than machines. So if machines are good at producing logical arguments, I, I could write into GPT chat, like write a five-page paper on why euthanasia is right. I could do the same thing and say, why is it wrong? And it will be pretty good at that. So like, let's assume that that human beings can also learn that skill, um, but that maybe life experience would would allow you to write a better paper because it would be connected to your lived experience of it. Um, so I don't know how do we how do we get people to do the anamnesis part of philosophy, the touching of that which animates it, and keep them keep us from turning it into this kind of crystallized form of argument or conclusion that that's indifferent to whether a human or or a machine is is putting forth the argument. I guess there are two sides to that. I'll say something really briefly about about the chatbots. And then some, and then something less briefly about philosophy. Actually, uh, while it's true that fi competent five-paragraph essays can be produced by the chatbot, it, it's actually logical argument is not its strength. So people have asked it, you know, is the come up with a to, to assess the validity of arguments, and it relies on basically it will just echo fallacies that are very common in the corpus. So it will affirm the it will say that if p then q q so p is a valid argument because lots of people make that mistake and it's just drawing from w what kinds of arguments out there are called valid. So to, to an amazing degree, we've managed to come up with this kind of logical machine that that is unable to make simple logical judgments with any reliability. Although it can produce a pretty plausible undergraduate essay, and this is terrifying. So. But setting aside the the, the chatbot problem, how do you how do you? I guess the deeper question is how how do you make philosophical training in the academy conducive to the kind of deepest and richest kinds of philosophical work, and then how do you make that accessible to, outside the academy? So there's this tendency of philosophers at a certain degree of prominence or age or public stature to use their pulp, their pulpit to explain why philosophy is in terrible shape. And I usually find myself recoiling from this for both on substantive grounds and because you know, you're, you're, going, you're using the fact that the discipline enabled you to get to this career stage and then have the freedom to write and say whatever you want to trash a discipline that has at least one good thing going for it. It gave you the freedom to do this. So I, I generally have a more positive view about the state of philosophy in that I think right now there are problems, but they're institutional. There's the lack of public funding for higher education. There's the disappearing jobs. Actually, the current generation of young philosophers seem to me way more likely than my generation of philosophers to let their personal lives, let their own life experience into their work, to let the state of society around them, the things that are frightening them about society, shape what kinds of questions they ask. So I, on the question how to do it, my answer is, I think it's happening. I think it's happening to a degree that represents massive progress over the state of philosophy when I was in grad school 25 years ago. The problem is it's happening at a point of massive compression in academia at which the, the number of jobs is shrinking and departments are struggling to survive. So really, I think if we wanted this to survive in academia, the thing would be 
focus, uh, this goes back to the issue about the structural, like though, though if you want there to be existential philosophy with existential value in, a, in the academy, the kind of thing the ancients would have prized, structural changes that save higher education are the biggest thing we really need. As to philosophy outside of the academy, again, I, maybe I sound too too optimistic. I I feel like this will, this will also bring us back full circle, truly, that podcasts like this like, have an audience. There is an audience and there are people who are for philosophical reflection outside the academy. And then there are people who are making and are enabled by technology to, to produce, to, to sort of introduce, invite people into philosophical conversations. So I, I, all of this could be better, but I have a kind of, I have a positive feeling about the 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 state of philosophy outside the academy now. Again, relative to what it was 30 years ago, there weren't podcasts like this 30 years ago, but also very f many fewer philosophers were writing books aimed at a general audience and open to the idea, in fact, committed to the idea that making philosophy available more widely is part of the, the task of academic philosophy. So yeah, mostly my answer to your question is, I think it. I think this. The kinds of shifts that you want to see, and that I want to see, are happening. And if the institutional and structural conditions were favorable, I think it would be a very exciting time to be in philosophy. And the problem is that the the world is in a in a rather dismal shape, and that has effects on on the the on higher education and also the availability of philosophy to people outside of higher ed. That also makes a lot of sense. I would wonder if the term philosophy in academia is too restrictive and not that this will solve maybe maybe that's like rearranging the 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 seats on a on the Titanic or something. But like let's bracket for a second the sort of constraints on funding and 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 the job market and all of that and just focus on the thing itself. Like what would be your objection to let's say um, having a humanities department in which philosophy professors taught as philosophers, but where there was let's no philosophy department, no English department, no history department, but just a humanities department. Do you think that um, I, uh, sort of bracketing people's egos in, in feeling like their departments are being canceled, do you think that that sort of interdisciplinary frame might um, allow for 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 better more synergy? I see. As a practical matter, I think there's enough, this goes back to the issue of training and apprenticeship. I think there's enough, the demands of the apprenticeship in philosophy or anthropology or literature or history are great enough that you'd want the departments to be separate. My dream of intellectual interaction is the humanities center, whereby people who have those disciplinary backgrounds are enabled, and in fact, sort of supported in interacting with each other in ways that are pretty hard to replicate. And it, again, it takes money and it takes time. You have to support people to to have the time to do that. So I would think something like the humanities department you described, where people are are crossing disciplines, but I suspect that in, pra in practical terms, it just will be hard to get people to the point where they could do that fruitfully without some of the narrowness that comes in this earlier apprenticeship phase. I think there's a risk that if you just have people go in as general humanists, what they can do as a general humanist in the five or six years of grad school is not 
is going to be too diffuse to really to really be um, productive. On the other hand, you might say you're just thinking too small, Kieran. Like, why why the five or six years of of the PhD program? You know, if we restructured the whole thing, who knows? Maybe you know. It, you know, I'm thinking too much like an incrementalist and not enough uh, with not enough vision. But I think the conversations you're describing are ones that happen too little in universities, and I I would like them to happen more. I'm super appreciative that you uh, got on my podcast and that we were able to talk, and uh, this was very special for me. So thank you so much, and uh, all the best with your writing and teaching and. Um, making a haven where uh people can experience the atelic uh it's it's not uh it's not easy to navigate the telic world um while while remembering the uh the importance of leisure so thank you so much for that and thank you so much for having me for making the podcast and for doing the work you do it's uh, it's wonderful Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharatkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.